You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Episode 82. Whether you are an HR manager of a global company seeking to transfer key employees to Canada, a foreign student searching for ways to remain permanently, or a Canadian citizen wishing to sponsor a spouse living abroad, the Canadian immigration process can be one of the most complex and frustrating things you will ever have to experience. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there and welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holthy, coming to you from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. Wow, I'm super excited to be back doing another podcast. I've been doing so many videos that it's different just talking into a mic. Fortunately, I have waiting in the wings my unbelievable, awesome guest, Rika McNutt, who has joined us back, and I'm going to get to her in a second, to continue with our special series on immigration hearings and appeals. Well... Lots has changed, and uh, there's going to be quite an evolution to our podcast as I start to build in a video component, and it's going to be spun out through my Immigration Nation playlist on my Canadian Immigration Institute YouTube channel. Uh, That's where I'm going to start doing a lot of these, so Rekha doesn't know it, but she's going to be one of the last individuals to do just an audio-only interview with me going forward. I want to celebrate these amazing immigration lawyers that we have across the country who are just toiling away quietly, representing their clients exceptionally, but just don't get enough fanfare. So that is my main focus and goal. I'm also super excited, as I, I, I probably say that too much, but uh, in less than a week, I will assume the official chair of the national, the chair role for the National uh, Immigration Section for the Canadian Bar Association. I'm a little nervous because uh, stepping into the shoes of our former chair, or soon to be former chair, Ravi Jane, is, <clears throat> well, it's just not going to happen. His shoes don't fit me. They're way, way too big. But uh, we're going to do things a little bit different, so I'm excited about that. And I'm also excited to be back once again after having finally a little bit of time off with the family. And uh, one thing I've noticed as I've been sitting in my chair for approximately six, seven months, because remember, I started this in December working out of my office and a virtual and setting up a virtual firm before the coronavirus hit and then everybody else joined me. So I've got another probably three months of putting on weight and eating and being sedentary and not exercising ahead of all of you. But my, my dear sons drug me up to the top of this uh, window mountain, um, just this mountain range. It took me three hours to crawl up there, including, and when I say crawl, I mean really crawl, scrambling up these boulders to get to the top. But what an unbelievable view. So cool. I wish I could show you pictures of it. But that's what Mark's been doing lately. I've enjoyed my summer. Um, we've got a new lawyer who's joined Healthy Immigration Law, um, Alicia Backman-Bahari has joined. We're excited to have her with us, and and we're hiring. So it's been growing really fast, and if you're an immigration lawyer out there looking for a new opportunity, don't hesitate to give me a call. 
All right, enough about me. It's now time to jump into my special guest, Rekha McNutt. Welcome, Rekha. Thank you, Mark, for having me again. It's, it's really great to be back. Awesome. So you guys will know if you go back, she is the main star right now of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm just that character who's introducing people and and asking somewhat helpful questions to get the conversation moving. She's the one that holds the knowledge, the experience, and is making these particular episodes on immigration hearings and appeals so awesome. So today, uh, just a little bit of an uh, an introduction. We have covered the ID appeals um, for sponsorship issues, uh, residency problems, and the last one we did, episode 82, was on criminality. Today, we're going to dive into the one that's probably, uh, well, it's one of the most challenging ones, which is misrepresentation. Now, this isn't just to distinguish this. Those of you who are listening, you think, oh, yeah, I remember my client. He came to me after he got his PR express entry application refused for failing to disclose a stupid visitor visa refusal in the U.S. Okay, we're not talking about the, you know, the application process. We're talking about losing it after you've received it. So... Maybe, Rekha, start off by defining misrep. What do we mean by misrepresentation? Sure, Mark, that's a good good place to start. Um, and just to backtrack a little bit on what you just said, you could probably do a whole episode on misrep as it relates to it coming up in the context of an application. or you know, So that's a really interesting topic to cover elsewhere. But misrep, what is it? <clears throat> so in our Immigration Act, this is what it says. Uh, a misrep happens when this happens. A permanent resident or a foreign national is inadmissible for misrep when they directly or indirectly misrepresent or withhold a material fact relating to a relevant matter that induces or could induce an error in the administration of this act. So that's a mouthful. What it essentially <laughs> means is you either lied about something or you hid something that immigration thinks was important for you not to have lied about or withheld. And so the and that, hiding is kind of the indirect? Is that correct. we're failing yes. to do or show or present or say something that you really should have said that would should have, have impacted on the processing of your application? Exactly. So even if you, you know, it's not a direct lie, if you withhold something that they think was material to your application, they can say that you've mis misrepresented. And if they do that and it sticks, what happens is you are barred from Canada for five years in the context of an application. Um, and in the context of somebody who's already a permanent resident, they lose that status and are barred for five years. So it's a really, really serious um punishing section of our immigration law. Wow, so surprising. A crushing <laughs> blow from immigration. Hmm, that's so strange. Okay, so how does this happen? Well, it happens, how, how it's discovered, it happens in a number of ways. Usually somebody says something about somebody else and then immigration investigates <laughs> whether that allegation is true. Um, so someone's telling on someone is how it usually comes up. Or it comes up innocently in the context of another application. So I'll give you an example. Um, somebody, you know, gets permanent residence between the time that they started their application and the time that they actually landed as permanent residence, their marital status changed. This is a very common problem. And they never told immigration about this. Mm -hmm. They go about their merry way, they get landed, their permanent residence, and then they turn around and try to sponsor their spouse. 
Well, not only are they barred from sponsoring their spouse, but all of a sudden immigration realizes that they they, they fail to disclose that they had changed their marital status. And so now it suddenly becomes a misrep issue for them. So it's either in the context of somebody tattling on someone else or that person is just has no idea they've done anything wrong and they make an application and it's discovered in the context of that application. And I think, Rekha, you've identified something something that is super important for people to realize. You you don't have to know that you've done it. You don't have to have an intention to, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to fail to disclose my spouse on purpose. It can be a complete innocent omission, at least in subjectively in your own, you know, your own mind. And you can be hammered and crushed by it. Totally. Yeah. And that's what a lot of people don't realize is they'll say, well, I I didn't know I had to, they didn't ask me anything. I didn't know I had to tell them that this changed. And that doesn't matter. Just the the failure to disclose that that material fact is enough. Now, there is something called innocent misrepresentation, which is an exception to the rule, but it's such a narrow, narrow exception that it it's hard for that to apply. Um, maybe I'll give you a very clear example of where that might apply. Is I was This was a funny case, but um, it was a situation of uh, a couple immigrating and they had a dependent child. And for some reason, immigration asked for that child to be DNA examined and compared to the parents. And it turned out that he was not the biological child of the, the man. <laughs> and it, it, it just so happened that he was conceived during this very short period of separation between this couple. And neither of them had any idea that this was not this man's child until their immigration application. And so immigration tried to say, you've misrepresented. Um, and the court said, you know, this is a clear situation where the, the people had absolutely no idea that they were misrepresenting anything. Like, the, how could they possibly know? Um, and so that kind of a scenario fits into what's known as innocent misrepresentation. Wow. Yeah, but I, you it's know very what? narrow. I actually had some clients in that situation. Now, in their case, in their in their in their situation, the uh, yeah, the the spouse was Canadian. Um, at least the principal applicant, I should say, was the, was was Canadian, and uh, he lived in the U.S. and then got himself into some issues and came back to Canada with his wife and children. But the oldest daughter wasn't his, and <laughs> yeah, I won't. That's a whole other you know explanation. And they requested that they do DNA. <laughs> And so we'll leave it at that. So yes, that definitely happens. <laughs> yeah. The, another situation, I guess, where it would happen is as a man, if you have a child and you don't know that child exists, so if, if, uh, that would never happen as a woman, but I yes. can see that happening <laughs> as well. Failure to disclose and then this child materializes and now you're having to explain and whatnot. That would, if you can convince them you had no idea that person existed, I think that would fall into the innocent misrep category as well. Wow. So you've got this coworker and um oh you get into a nasty fight with them you've cons- you know you've you've confided in them you've told them a lot of things about your immigration history including maybe some things that you should have done differently during the application process and then this coworker they they write up this lovely poison pen letter to immigration and uh now you're on the radar so mm-hmm carry it forward from here as an applicant how does this how is this brought to my attention so what typically happens is you'll get a letter from immigration it's called a fairness letter and at that very early stage they'll say to you we think you lied about something and this is what the something is that we think you lied about when you applied for permanent residence 
explain and give us a reason why we should not write a report against you. And so that's your first and earliest opportunity to get very good legal advice to to write as compelling a letter back as possible to say, please don't even go this far because here's my explanation. But assuming that they say, nope, this is serious, we're going to write you up, they're going to write what's called a Section 44 report against you. And that's just a report saying you've misrepresented. And I'll lay out very briefly what the allegations of misrepresentation are. They'll give you that report, and then they will send that report off to the Immigration Division, which is another division of the Immigration and Refugee Board in Canada. And that division really has very little uh, discretion. They can look at the report, and if it's well-founded on the facts, so the you know, there's enough there to, to, to make out a misrep allegation, then they will issue a removal order against that permanent resident. Now, that removal order isn't enforceable until the appeal is concluded. So as a permanent resident, they have an appeal right to the Immigration Appeal Division, and you'd be foolish not to appeal uh, to the IAD. And so the, that person retains their PR status until the IAD makes its final decision. That does not sound like fun. <laughs> uh, How long yeah. does it take for this to run its course? Well, it, you know, it's varied. Uh, like they give the you years. thirty days, sixty days to respond, or seven days. Oh, in terms of the actual mm-hmm. fairness letter yeah. at the very beginning, yeah. sometimes it's as short as two weeks, but typically it's about a month, and you can always ask for more time. Mm-hmm. And there, I've never had a request for time extension been refused now from a practical standpoint and you know i haven't dealt in you know delved into this area um you know can you extend it long enough to to get the do an atip and and get the notes you could um but a lot of the times the atip i don't know that there's a lot of atip notes uh that are going to be available. ATIP is not something that's produced in the context of the immigration division hearing. I'm just trying to think of what's inside a record. It's more an officer's statutory declaration, usually that sets out exactly what the allegations are. Um, so I don't know that an ATIP would get you a lot more information. So someone sent in a poison pen uh, letter or something like that to immigration. Where is it recorded then? I wonder if it, it would be in the ATIP GCMS, but I think if you ordered a full copy of your file, then you might get a copy of that. But I wonder mm-hmm. if they would withhold information <laughs> oh, like yes, that. For sure. Insert, yeah. <clears throat> so I don't even yeah. know if you'd see it. Oftentimes, you don't. they won't tell you who wrote the letter or, or what the letter says. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. I remember, and I don't mean to get into too many anecdotal stories, but I did have some clients that came through some unscrupulous uh, agent through a, a kind of a bogus refugee scam. Uh-huh. And uh, it was a part of this big sting, and all of that was within their file material. And uh, it it actually showed up in the context of a subsequent uh, sponsorship application for a dependent child, an, an adult dependent child, who, who was still back in the home country that they wanted to bring in. And, it, uh-huh. <clears throat> and they hadn't redacted it when I requested, because they were trying to figure <laughs> out, why is this taking so long? Why can I not sponsor my son? Why can he not be reunited with me? Yeah. And it was because of this. I can't, they even had a code word for the, the sting that they did. Or, or it was, <laughs> yeah, it was a well, well publicized little scam that these, um, these a- agents were using to bring people in. Same story, you know, that kind of thing. And eventually it caught yeah. up to them. So, okay. There well, go. there you go. All right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so we've got uh, we've got a kind of a general idea of how things you know play out. So when it comes to the ID, so we've got the fairness letter and the opportunities to 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 respond there. So continue okay. forward with how this plays out. So once it, you know, like I said, if they decide despite your excellent response that they're going to go ahead with writing the letter, it gets referred to the immigration division. And that's your second opportunity, I guess, to make your case. But at the immigration division, all you're going to be able to do is fight with whether that allegation is is well-founded on the facts, whether it's legally well-founded. Because the immigration division doesn't have any humanitarian jurisdiction. So they can only look at what are the facts and have they been made out so that they can issue the removal. And if they have, then they will issue that removal. So you're off to the IED with your appeal. And at the IED, again, you can challenge the legal grounds of that misrep allegation and the removal order. But really, the IED is your opportunity to put forth as strong a humanitarian case as possible to convince the board that they should let you stay despite what you've done wrong. Okay, so we look at these agency factors. What, what have they actually accepted as a justification? So you've got someone who knowingly really abused the system to their gain. Mm-hmm. So what kind of things, we know, you know, the basic general HNC factors, but, uh, you know, what did those, are those, is it all, I'm assuming it's all open season, right? It really is. And so the typical HNC factors, as you mentioned, are, you know, how long have they been in Canada? How serious was their misrepresentation? What country do they come from? Because your country of origin can dictate the hardship you'll endure in going back. Are there children that are involved and settled in Canada? Are there people back home who rely on you to send money to them? And if you had to go back home, they would they would suffer. Um, but in a misrep context, another thing that they often look at is whether the misrepresentation was on eligibility or admissibility. And this is an interesting nuance. So if it's on eligibility, that means that you lied about qualifying for the program you applied under. Um, So if it's an economic application, maybe you lied about your work experience or something like that. Whereas misrepresentation on admissibility is that marriage example that I gave you where the person didn't disclose that they had a spouse. And why that's an admissibility problem is because that spouse, if that spouse had a criminal problem or medical problem, that would have come to light when they were examined. But because you didn't tell them they existed, that spouse was never examined. So they could have rendered you inadmissible on an admissibility check. Now, that's considered less serious on the misrep analysis because you would have still qualified on your own. You didn't lie about qualifying or being eligible to become a permanent resident. Where the lie or the misrep goes directly to your your eligibility, then that is looked at much more seriously. And I can give you an example of an IED matter that I had where that was the situation. Hmm. Interesting. So, <clears throat> so in the context of, of the eligibility uh, misrep, you know, on eligibility grounds, mm-hmm. you know, you can, you can think of so many situations where <clears throat> individuals could have produced maybe a reference letter that was creatively altered to, yep. and I keep coming back, back to express injury, which is my world these days. Right. How many times I look at reference letters and I say to the client, did, did you draft this? Does your employer know that, you know, you and your supervisor are, you know, are, are putting this together and did you actually do these duties? And, you know, something as, as small and as innocent as that, that doesn't get caught in the initial stages, 
is it possible for something as small as that to to filter all the way through and then result in someone losing permanent residence? Or is there something more egregious, something more nefarious? Not that that isn't bad. I, I'm just trying to figure out how, you know, they've got limited resources, right, to hunt these things down. So yep. there's probably all kinds of people who are irritated and are sending off, you know, I'm complaining to immigration. I'm going to tell, I'm going to, you know, you promised to bring me to Canada after you got there. And so now I'm going to tell you that the reference letter with the employer was, was just faked. Well, but that is probably one of those files you can fight on, on merit, on the, on the legal findings of, or the allegation itself. I mean, if you, if, if it's, you genuinely work for that employer and, did the duties that you say you did in the in the covering letter? That's an easy problem to fix. To say this, you you have no basis to say I've misrepresented. So I don't see a lot of those, and I think that's a lot harder to for immigration to make stick. But um, I'll give you a non-express entry example for eligibility. So I had this client who was being sponsored by his spouse. It was an in Canada spousal, um, common law partners, and their relationship had broken down before he got his permanent residence. And they were living in separate residences, so they weren't cohabiting, which is a necessary part of an in Canada sponsorship. And they both went to the interview, and neither of them said that they were separated. And they got he got his permanent residence. And then she she's the one who reported him, actually. She went to a lawyer and asked about how do I report this guy that he, he we were not together when we got his PR. And she did it within about two weeks of him getting his PR. So it's not like she was disgruntled later on. It was it was fairly quickly after he landed um at, at CIC Calgary, actually. And so um that was one a clear eligibility because he wasn't with his partner anymore. So he was not eligible to be sponsored as a common law partner in Canada. Um, and, and that was considered a lot more egregious than, you know, the other case that I mentioned where the fellow f- didn't disclose that he was married before he got his PR. Wow. So yeah. I can see this spiraling. Wow. I can really see this spiraling into a ton of different areas, especially totally. in the context of COVID right now. Mm-hmm. So all of the individuals who have job offers that form a part of their express entry application, in particular, I keep coming back to this, or a PNP application or an FSW that's based on the job offer, and and the expectation is that you're continuing to work, mm-hmm. or you know, being able to continue to prove that you can economically establish yourself in the province. And we've seen the letters coming back from the PNP saying, notify us if you're no longer working, mm-hmm. and what your plan is for work. And then we get the questions from our clients saying, do I have an obligation to notify? I'm just laid off. I think I'm going to go back to work. And then it goes all the way through and they're landed. Mm -hmm. And then through whatever mechanism or means it comes to the attention of immigration, that would fall squarely within this. Totally. So they can, if it's a PNP situation, they can say, you know, your nomination was employer driven. It was based on your job and in this particular company and you didn't have that. So you shouldn't have, like, had you told us um, your nomination would have been, may have been canceled and you wouldn't have gotten your PR. But the fact that you withheld that information was material, was a material misrep. (laughs) So the moral of the story is, (laughs) yeah, contact a lawyer before Yes. You you decide to omit something <laughs> and see if there's a better exactly. pathway forward. The bulk of misrep isn't people overtly lying. It's the omissions. That's that's what we see most often. And another piece to this that's important to remember is it has to be a material misrepresentation. So not everything that's withheld is material. 
because sometimes some details just don't matter. So, um, you know, if you were sponsor, if you're sponsoring your parents and your parents weren't truthful about their education on their, on their schedule a form, that's irrelevant to being sponsored as a parent. Right. So the, the, the word material is an important piece of this that you have to remember. And, and somebody with experience needs to look at that and say, is this a material misrep or not? So talk a little bit about, like in the past, we've talked about the the process and how it flows. Now we're in the midst of a pandemic right now. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of this is kind of grinding to, to a halt and it's situation specific, but what's your world like right now dealing with these issues? Is, Is everything just kind of been put on hold and you know, uh, th- these matters pending, you know, is it, or is this done traditionally through a virtual kind of thing or is it more in person or, you know, how, well, what's the world look like today? It's really, really interesting. So with hearings, um, and this is not just for the IAD, but just hearings generally, my colleague had a refugee hearing, two of them this week, and they were in Calgary and everybody was here physically, but she and her client were in one room. There was plexiglass everywhere. Um, the member was also in Calgary, but in a different room. <laughs> so it was video conferenced between two rooms in the same building. Um, I've also heard, um, I've not had any IAD appeals scheduled, but the, the board is reopened. Vancouver opened, that's the regional office that opened before uh, Montreal and Toronto opened. They opened a little bit later because their situation was much more serious. But uh, they're scheduling... So that that's the sort of the format right now is you and your client are in one room and the member is in a different room, despite the plexiglass being installed in all these rooms. Um, so it's been it's making for a bit of an interesting situation. I think they're still giving people the option to just appear from like if my client could come to my office and we could video in from here instead of going down to the IRB. I think that's still an option as well. Mm-hmm. But I haven't I've, I've just scheduled two refugee claims for. October. We'll see how how it is by then. Wow. And I know for many of our (laughs) colleagues, it's very contentious right now because a lot of, you know, a lot of our members, many of them feel, you know, a little thrown under the bus with this because, Mm -hmm. you know, the, a lot of the responsibility for ensuring the the client can connect virtually, whether it's in purpose, in person or, or at the council's office is, is squarely put on, you know, on, on the, the shoulders of, of council and in many yep. cases, offices are small. And, uh, you know, there's a real concern with council, you know, for us with, you know, with contracting the virus. And obviously, the members are well taken care of in this situation. They don't have anything to worry about. But yeah, it's it's been definitely a point of contention, uh, you know, within our within the members of the bar. So we'll see how it plays out. But I'm just totally. grateful that we can work, right? Things are and, resuming. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, I've been having to deal with, misrep is sort of the flavor of the day, I say. And it's come up in a lot of other contexts and applications and federal courts. So I've been dealing with this in other ways. But in terms of hearings, that's just starting to resume. So we should be seeing a lot more being scheduled in October and, and later. Interesting. Yeah, this is an area that I haven't spent a lot of time in at all myself through the course of years. And I, I tend to direct these things to you. And, well, uh, you did a spousal appeal. I you? did indeed. I'm a sp- <laughs> and I was a successful one at that. 
So you left on a high. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah. You have a hundred percent success rate before the immigration <laughs> refugee board. <laughs> and that's you know to a large extent. There's not too many federal court hearings down here in Lethbridge. So uh, you know, or ID appeals or things like that. So um, that has pretty much decided the kind of immigration practice I have. But. It's been pretty amazing with what I can do being centered in Lethbridge, Alberta, which is the center of immigration in Canada. And without getting um, too diverted to other topics, I've been trying to convince my clients to put on their application forms that they're destined for Lethbridge so that maybe there'll be more funding coming to my city for settle- <laughs> settlement and everything. It would be hilarious. <laughs> There'll be the study. They're like, I don't know why, what but there's going on? people wanting to go to Lethbridge. Well, well, it's a little case study, right? Like there's 125,000 people in one of my Facebook groups, and that's that's enough to, and they're all express entry, so that's a that's a pretty significant dent that I could have. There you go. And then you're going to get elected mayor. <laughs> well, absolutely. Oh, a glorious, glorious position. By all of the new people that you've brought in. <laughs> oh, you got to laugh sometimes. Either that or you're just going to spend your days crying in this current oh. world. Totally. All yeah. right. So we've, we've kind of covered, you know, some pretty high level stuff. We've talked about the ins and outs of, of misrep, how it works, how you can find yourself in that situation. Typically, some of the things that the IED looks at, how you can you know, try to challenge it. Is there anything else that you'd like to, you know, to cover that we haven't covered to this point? Well, I think just what the outcomes are. Um, so once your appeal is heard by the IED, the board member has one of two choices. Well, they have three choices, but one is to allow your appeal, which means they forgive you. Essentially, despite what you've done, they're going to let you stay because there's enough humanitarian grounds to to allow that to happen. Or they'll deny your appeal, which means the misrep holds, that removal order is now in force, and you are no longer a permanent resident. And we can, on another day, talk about what that means in terms of what do you do after that and what's your status in Canada, because you're not a PR anymore, what's the process for them removing you from Canada, etc. But then you're faced with a five-year bar as well. And then the third option, which is a power of the IED, which is to stay appeals, doesn't really apply very well in misrep situations or anything beyond criminality. So we talked in the criminality episode that the IAD could stay in appeal, which means we're not going to make a decision for a while and then come back in a while to see if that person's behaved. And if they've behaved, they'll allow the appeal. It doesn't really translate into other types of appeals because what are you going to stay it for? They've misrepped already. What are you watching for going forward? So that power exists, but in the context of misrep, the outcome is either they allow it or they they dismiss the appeal. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah, that's where we where we end that process. What I would also like to say is this is this goes well before any of this starts is is where you're getting your advice from. So in misrep situations, I find the number one source of misinformation are family and friends. So your own community is the source of sometimes the worst information. And so people get into trouble because they'll say, oh, my aunt told me not to say that I was married because it was de- it would delay my application. So they don't, you know, they rely on people saying, don't yes. do it. Um, and that's the misinformation that comes from friends, family, and the community is probably the number one cause of all problems. So if you're getting, you know, legal advice that's, or not legal advice, any kind of advice from anybody that's telling you not to tell the truth in an immigration context or to hide something, I think you need to 
make sure that doing so is not going to jeopardize you in 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 the future. Yeah, and there's really three different scenarios. If it's your friend or family, well, if it's a friend, tell them to take a hike. A family, yeah, just basically ignore them. If it's a, a regulated immigration consultant, report them and, and, <laughs> and terminate the relationship. And the same thing goes for a lawyer if that happens. The Law Society is a great source for you to go to after you've terminated that relationship. So this is yep. stuff, this ruins lives. And well, let me tell you, I, I'll tell you a quick story of an appeal I had last year of a person who was uh, immigrating as um, under the PNP, I think. And he was one that he didn't disclose his spouse. But his spouse had actually come to Canada and was here as a visitor and he was working and she even went with him to the border and everything. But he had a consultant who uh, was actually convicted in, I think, Manitoba. I can't remember where exactly, but of fraud. Like he was actually prosecuted and convicted. And that consultant in writing had advised this person. So he says to his consultant, I want to go get married. What do I do? And then he comes back. He goes, I am now married. What should I do? And he was specifically advised in writing, do not tell immigration because it will delay your application. Beautiful. So he listened. Um, You think that would be enough? Like we put on all these emails and everything, but the CBSA hearings officer still fought this. Like he relied on these consultants, this consultant who told him to lie. Now, like, you know, the argument is, well, he still should have known he was not being truthful, which is fair, but he was also paying somebody who he thought he could trust in terms of the legal advice that was being given um, of whether he should or shouldn't disclose this. Despite that, this man went through the whole rigmarole of a full appeal. So you, you can imagine where, you know, and that was clear yeah. evidence of being counseled by a representative to, to lie. And, and that's a very, very good lesson. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can't just hide behind your representative. You, you can't, you know, the classic is, well, I didn't, you know, I signed the forms in advance and then they filled them out for me. And I know this yeah. is in the context of the application on the, at the onset. You know, I didn't get a chance to review them after I gave them the basic information. They just took it and submitted it, especially in an mm-hmm. express entry context where you, mm-hmm. where you can't really, you have to produce screenshots or use, you know, Nathan Poe's awesome little imprinter that he, that he developed for Chrome, for the Chrome browser to allow you to share the information with your clients, which big shout out to Nathan up in Edmonton. But yeah, th- this is hard. And, and one of the things I see this happen most in is big shops where they're just pumping people through. And, yeah. um, and so you just you have to realize that you cannot pass that on. It the buck stops with you. And well, and I think what's the other issue is a lot of the times people will say, "I told my yeah. representative, and they didn't do anything, or they told me to do this." And often, sometimes that may be true, but there's no way to prove that. Most people don't send their clients an email, email saying, saying lie, lie about it, right? Yeah. So this was a very interesting scenario in that we had actual proof, but a lot of the times it's hard to rely on on saying my consultant or lawyer told me to because how how do you prove that besides you saying so and you have a vested interest in saying so so it's without you know some way to prove that it's not usually something you can rely on to get over what's being alleged yeah well the the moral of this story is you just avoid this like the plague and you identified the issues early on, and obviously mm-hmm. a lot of our fellow colleagues listen to these podcasts, and, and we've had a, v- a wide variety of experience um, 
you know, sorting through this and, and there is no clear pathway forward. And it depends on the officer that you have. It depends upon the facts of this specific situation. And we've seen two scenarios that are pretty much similar fact patterns go two different directions just based on the decision maker. Totally. So you have to be careful. And you have to, you can't assume that what they're alleging is correct. Like, you know, I I talked about materiality of misrepresentation. It's really important to look at what is it that they're telling you you're lying about and whether that's an actual important detail. So, you know, assuming you can't assume that their allegations are true just because they're saying this happened. Right. So um, it's, that's why it's really important to consult with somebody who works in this area that can say, you know, I've, I've seen cases go both ways, or this is how we should tackle this. And this should be our strategy. I think that's all very important to do it as early as possible. Absolutely critical. Excellent. Well, this has been a great, great episode. And, you know, I think we've got some more to come here in the in the future. But at this stage, uh, this draws to a close our our special episode here on, um, you know, appealing the removal of a PR for misrep. And so that's right. Thank you, Reka, for for joining. And just to remind everyone, Reka McNutt is an immigration lawyer who practices in Calgary, Alberta with Karen and Partners. And uh, she has become a staple here on the Canadian Immigration Podcast. So thank you so much for joining us, Reka. And how can they reach you when they realize, oh my goodness, I've got this letter? (laughs) Well, they can phone me. My phone number is 403-770-4014. My email is rmcnutt, which is R-M-C-N-U-T-T, at karenpartners.com. Um, or I'm on all the social media. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. And I, I, I promise you, I think there's only one Reka McNutt in this entire <laughs> earth. I'd like to see if there ever surfaces another person with this name combination. So if you Google me, you will find me. Amazing. <laughs> so write me, the only me. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you uh, joining me today. Thank you, Mark. It was, uh, it was fun, as usual. Excellent. All right. Well, that was an awesome, awesome interview, as always. We did um, it. It was fantastic. And, uh, and so I'll say a few parting words here to the, uh, to the listeners. And uh, uh, yeah, the, the episode was fantastic today. I wanna, you, know, you could see Reka was totally, um, yeah, she was on our game today. It was fantastic. And we have gone through and covered a, a whole host of things with respect to the IED appeals. And, and stay tuned, there's going to be more to come in the future. Um, yeah, this, this episode was, uh, as always, sponsored by the Canadian Immigration Institute. So go over to the YouTube channel, check it out. Um, I've got a few little guides that we've created and uh, to design, designed to help people you know, navigate their way through when they're DIYers at heart. Um, and like I said in the beginning, in the opening uh, to this, uh, we're, we're looking for lawyers. So if you're interested in, in a, uh, working in a kind of an interesting environment, uh, a truly virtual firm by design, uh, that's Healthy Immigration Law. So I look forward to joining us. And if you felt this was uh, helpful and useful, please go to iTunes and wherever else you're listening to this and leave a review because it helps to get it uh, spread out to the masses. So thanks so much. Uh, This is Mark Holthy signing off, wishing you guys all the best as you navigate this crazy world that we call Canadian immigration.
your phone.